Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. So John 18, 28 to 19, verse 16. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he said this, he went out against, again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Moving down to 19, verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chiefs, chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. 
Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. You know, we've reached the end of our series together as a church, looking at the seven signs that are found in John, climaxing in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. However, what we've chosen to do is spend a couple of weeks together, uh, looking together at some of the high points in the remainder of John's gospel as we lead up towards Advent. You see, the first half of John's gospel, it's referred to by most scholars as the book of signs because it falls this rhythmic flow, looking at the seven signs of Jesus. But what we're doing now is looking at these final high points in the life of Jesus because they too function as a sign pointing to great realities outside of themselves. So these final moments is what we are slowing down yet again today to look at. Last week, we talked about Jesus in Gethsemane. Today, we talk about Jesus on trial. And much like last week, we will discuss things that look really irreconcilable, two things that look incompatible. Today, regarding the sovereignty of God and yet simultaneously the free will of man. Last week, it was us talking about God's justice as a judge and yet also his mercy as a father. Remember, we were confronted with that reality when we heard the words of Jesus that he had said, where he says in chapter 18, verse 11, he says, it is the father who gives me the cup to drink. But as we discussed, how could a father who's loving, or as God described himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, he said that he was a God who is merciful and forgiving. How could he also be the one who gives just judgment? Or as God said to Moses, a God who does not excuse or clear the guilty. You see, there's a tendency in our hearts, or, or maybe if we made this less personal, rather than just saying in us, we could say even in our churches, in many of our churches, to lean in one direction of those two options or the other. To either be strong in justice and truth and quick towards judgment, that can be its natural byproduct, but then to simultaneously lose sight of the mercy and grace of a loving Father. While others still today, whether people or churches even, what they find themselves doing is that they're drawn toward the loving, compassionate heart of a father, but they seem to leave no room for a father who also hands out a cup of judgment and suffering, a judge who is just, because we think to ourselves that he cannot be good if he also allows those that he loves to suffer, if he allows us to face hardship or, or even allowing or calling them even to die to themselves. How could these two things we see as almost dueling realities of judgment and mercy, how could they coexist in one divine entity? How is it that he is both a loving father and the one who handed the son the cup of suffering and judgment? Well, we answered it in saying that we find the justice of God and the mercy of God coming together in this climactic moment that displays his character like no one else in all of nowhere else in all of human history, it is found in God's embracing of suffering in Jesus. 
where God proves that his love is equally as powerful as his justice when he's willing to take upon himself the judgment that we deserve in order for him to embrace and welcome us with the love of a father, that love that filled his heart. You see, in that moment, he is the just judge who brings justice, and he is simultaneously the gracious father who shows mercy and extends forgiveness. But think about the implications of this. Because in our modern Western setting that's largely insulated and isolated from the kind of suffering that most of human history is marred by, and even much of modern history is still subject to, we're insulated and isolated from it in that we don't face, we didn't wake up this morning facing fear of genocide. We're not in danger today, those of us who are present here, of starvation. We're not growing up in war-torn eastern Ukraine or in a region ruled by Hamas, or even a region that's facing attacks from groups like Hamas. For us today, we spent the last few minutes observing International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and the way that we observe it is we pray for others who face grave persecution, because that's not our reality. We in safely insulated San Diego have a tendency then to choke on a God who demands justice at all costs which is not me downplaying that some of you are suffering deeply. I know that. Oh, but in our comfort, we believe that it's a human right for all to live out their life pursuing happiness, regardless of what they think makes them happy. Happy, And we are offended at the thought of God who would judge or at the thought of a God who would bring condemnation on anyone. But I don't believe that we have to travel too far back in history or even really to travel that far geographically for us to find people who feel the opposite way. They live in such brokenness and poverty. They live in such a struggle to just exist and survive that the judgment of God is precisely what they believe humanity deserves. For evildoers to be condemned is absolutely the right thing that they think should happen. For slave owners who oppress them or cruel leaders who, who, who stand over them in authority and judgment, for them to face a final judgment for them to stand before a just God is the only thing that would be right and fair for them. Oh, but for them, for God to be merciful and gracious and patient, to be full of loving kindness, for him to be a father who forgives and welcomes the wicked, that's what they would find is a scandal. Do you see that it's the opposite of the way that we in the West who are insulated and isolated from much of the world's suffering? It's the opposite of how we feel. But oh, please hear me. He is both of those things. He is the father who gives the cup of suffering. I mean, think for a moment with me about if a judge, just picture a judge, if the judge sat on the stand and extended forgiveness at the cost of judgment and justice, especially if you were on the other side of the crimes of that criminal, of that perpetrator, you would say that that judge is not fit for their role or position. You would be offended by their forgiveness. But what about a judge who would condemn and judge and yet come down off the stand to put himself in the handcuffs and to be taken away to face the guilty person's sentence? Because we have a just judge in God who would pay for the crime rather than dismissing it, demanding, in fact, that it be paid, but then simultaneously volunteering to be the one to pay for the crime so that all of us who are guilty have a chance to be forgiven and go free. You see, we have a God who's both loving and just, who's condemning and forgiving, who's a judge and a father. That is what we have. 
And I hope that you understand the uniqueness of that, that you don't find that in any other religion, especially when God would demand justice from his own son to make a way for his enemies who are guilty to be forgiven and embraced by the father. Oh, and that wasn't cosmic child abuse where the father just overpowered the son. No, as the scriptures say, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19. It is God himself demanding justice and God himself absolving his judgment when he lovingly took on flesh and suffered in our place. Timothy Keller in his book on forgiveness, he writes saying this. He says, God is not a just or excuse me, God is not just a God of love or a God of wrath. He is both. And if your concept of God can't include both, it will distort your view of reality in general and of forgiveness in particular. You see, my friends, only our God is a God of both wrath and love. And both his wrath and his love are fulfilled and satisfied as they come together in the moments that we're watching in these last few weeks as we lead up to Advent. They come together in these moments that lead to the cross where God would enact his justice and mercy simultaneously. But why does this matter? Like, why is this even important or worth discussing? Remember, as I mentioned last week, if even God would not and could not bend or twist his justice and judgment to protect himself from it, then I should not assume for a moment that I can do the same thing. You see, my anger that goes unchecked or our dishonesty that we think goes unnoticed or, or it's the way that we rebel against God and our unbridled lust or our expression of our sexuality, it's, it's the disdain, the disgust, the hatred we harbor in our hearts, which might be racial bias or homophobic charged slurs or, or condescending attitudes we have to others who think different or even vote different than we do. We allow these things to remain in our lives, all the while naively depending, we say, upon God's mercy, while bypassing and disregarding his righteous justice and judgment. We do not truly know God, at least not the true and living God of the Bible, if we think of him as a cosmic passive pushover, though. Galatians 6 tells us, you will reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that if we live in active rebellion against God, we should not be expecting to be welcomed by him when it says that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You know, even in our modern Western Christian culture, right now there have been discussions happening around subjects of sexuality and homosexuality and transgenderism over the past several weeks in many, many Christian circles because of a conference that a very intellectual influential American Christian leader just hosted. And when he had this, com- this conversation in this conference take place, it really largely set aside biblical sexual ethics in the name of love and affirmation of people of all kinds. One of the lines of thinking and debating that's floating around cyberspace right now after the conference is that God's love will always win out over his commandments and his justice. But Christ suffered under the wrath of God. Do we look to Christ and tell him God winks at sin and dismisses it because his love wins out over his judgment or justice? No, in Christ, he experienced both. See, the cultural push right now is to set aside the passages that would condemn people's behavior in the name of love for the person. 
how are we loving a person if we're not letting them see the justice of God, a holy God? Because, and I quote, whenever there is a tension between loving a person or following the Bible, it's biblical, ethical commands of the Bible, I quote, God is on the side of the loving person. God is not on the side of the sinner. He was on the cross for the sinner. Taking the judgment we deserve, he was not dismissing it. I bring this up as an example, not because sexuality is the easiest pinata to hit in a gathering like this, but because it is the biggest cultural war currently being waged against the church, and it is the biggest cultural war that is being waged within the church. You know, for Lindsay and I in our marriage, we made an agreement years ago that we would allow the other person to set the boundaries and parameters around our behavior that they saw fit. So if Lindsay's uncomfortable for my, with my interaction with somebody, she can say, I'm not comfortable with how you interact with her or how you interface with those people. And then I ask her, where would you like the fence to be built? And then I build that fence where she wants. And you might look and say, that's controlling. Or you might assume that's motivated by fear of what she'll do to you if you don't listen to her, or even by shame of what if you cross the boundary and then you're exposed that you're involved with someone else. Now you'll be shamed publicly. But I'll tell you, my motivation for doing that is not fear or shame, it's love. It's that I count it a great gift and joy and pleasure in my life to be loved by Lindsay, that it's far greater a thing than anything I could find somewhere else. And because of that, I'm willing to allow her to construct those boundaries and parameters does that limit my life? Absolutely it does in some areas at some times, but am I okay with that? 100%. Because the love I found is special and it's sacred. And because of that love, love is the motivation in my life. And I'm willing to set boundaries and parameters, even if it means that it restricts me from certain things. Do you see that this is what it's like? It's not just the judgment and and the shame that, that comes with it that motivate us to obey our God and put boundaries and parameters around. It's not just that he's a just judge that should motivate us to obey. It's that far greater than just his just judgment is the beauty of his unique love for us. It's that he went under the judgment. It's that we've experienced a love that's otherworldly. Oh, doesn't the beauty of his love captivate and motivate you more than the dread of his judgment or wrath? Because that is the heartbeat of the gospel. Oh, we remember Jesus' own words, that it is the Father who gives me the cup to drink. He's the Father who's loving and simultaneously the one who brings just judgment. And those two realities intersect beautifully at the cross of Christ, where Christ would go under the sword of God's eternal justice so that we could receive the embrace of a loving Father. As I said a few minutes ago, we look at these things that seem to come together that are almost irreconcilable. They feel incompatible. God's justice as a judge, and yet his mercy as a father. And today, regarding the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Now, I know I just took a couple of minutes to dive a little bit deeper into some things that we've been talking about, but I'll just be honest with you. The reason I did that is I get an extra hour to preach today because you got an extra hour to sleep. So we're just going to go long. I'm just kidding. It's, it's that I'm only going to introduce two new concepts then. So I'd like for you to chew on two additional things with me today that really are two additional paradoxes that I want you to see in the text. The first is what we just discussed. Sure, it's that God's justice and his mercy somehow simultaneously work together. But the second thing is God's sovereignty and man's free will coinciding, working harmoniously together. But then the final thing that we'll close with as we transition to communion 
is the world's self-condemnation when it condemned Jesus. And I say that because in condemning Jesus, the world was really condemning itself. So let's discuss two new paradoxes that this passage introduces to us. And the first is in regard to God's sovereignty and yet man's free will. You know, as you read through the Gospels and you get to this moment in time in the life of Jesus, it's natural and normal to ask, why is he here? Like, how did he get here? And here being his arrest, his trial, his punishment, how did he get here? But if you start actually at the beginning of the book, back at the beginning of the Bible, you're far more clear on why he gets here. You approach this moment with the confidence of how he got here and why he's here. You know that Jesus is not here because Judas has duped him out or tricked him or or played him well. It's not that Jesus is here because of the religious leaders who are fueled by jealous rage. He's not here because of Pontius Pilate's power over him. He's not even here because of his great enemy, the devil, who we're told entered Judas at the moment that Judas got up from the table to betray Jesus. Jesus is here because it was always the plan of God for him to be here. It was in the garden of God, in Eden as we call it, that God himself had promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, saying that he would crush the head of the serpent, but in doing so be wounded in the process. And that climactic moment is arriving in this moment. That climactic moment in the eternal plan of redemption and restoration has come. You see, you are not meant to see a weak and wounded man who's overpowered and powerless in this moment, because that is not what we actually find in Jesus in this moment. Really, God's love and faithfulness, not his weakness. Hear me, please. God's love and his faithfulness, not his weakness, is the reason for this dark and sinister moment. It is his love that that answers the question of why he is here. I mean, make no mistake, it's because of human rebellion and sin that necessitated it, or necessitated it, it made it necessary for Jesus to come and to do this very thing. But it was God's love and mercy that were the reason we find Jesus on trial in this moment. Oh, this isn't Jesus being bested or one-upped or defeated. This is the eternal God who created the universe stepping into his eternal plan. In fact, think with me for a moment. All four of the Gospels actually stress and emphasize this very thing. Let me start with Matthew. We're in Gethsemane when the crowd of soldiers came to arrest Jesus. One of his disciples, we know from another Gospel, it's Peter, that he drew a sword and attacked a servant of the high priest, cutting his ear off. Jesus will heal the nameless servant, but before he does, he makes this statement to the nameless one who drew the sword. He says it this way in Matthew's gospel. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus makes it clear that this is happening because this was God's eternal plan that the prophets were aware of. And that this is happening even though Jesus is not in a position of weakness in this moment. He says he could call down 12 legions of angels. A legion was a Roman garrison of 6,000 soldiers. 
He's saying, I could call down more than 12 of those, more than 72,000 angels could show up in this moment to defend me. Oh, Jesus isn't being bested or one-upped or defeated. This is the eternal God who created the universe stepping into his eternal plan of redemption. It's not only Matthew, it's Mark and Luke who pile it on as well. With all three of them recording Jesus' response to the high priest's question about his identity. Are you the Christ, the Messiah, heaven's promised deliverer coming down, the son of the blessed, he asks. Mark 14, 62 records Jesus responding saying, I am and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The son of man. Jesus is placing himself in Daniel's prophetic imagery. You see, in Daniel 7, he has this vision of these vicious animals that represent domineering nations that would suppress God's people, that that would attack them. And then the Ancient of Days is seen, God himself seated on his throne in power with the power to take and to end the reign of these entities and empires. And then someone emerges who's called the Son of Man. He comes down to the earth with heaven's authority and power to set up an eternal kingdom, putting an end to humanity's broken pattern of one broken empire after another. Oh, the Son of Man coming with heaven's power and authority is God himself coming down. It's Jesus. But who would have thought, who could have conceived that this is the way that the Son of Man would strip the world system of its authority and power? How could we have known that this is how he would topple the whole broken system and bring an eternal kingdom and reign of peace? Well, in this moment, Jesus is at the mercy of no one. He's not a pawn being manipulated here. He's not a powerless person being abused. He's making clear that he is the one coming with heaven's authority and power and with heaven's commission, which means that he would allow himself to be crushed rather than to crush all who stood before him. Final judgment day will come, but on this judgment day, he will suffer and die at the hands of men in the place of men. Again, I point out to you, this isn't him being bested or duped or defeated. This is the eternal God who created the universe, stepping into his eternal plan of redemption. Oh, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John wouldn't miss out on his opportunity to join the party and jump in on this to make sure that we're aware that Jesus is still very much in authority and power. You might remember last week in Gethsemane where they came to him and said, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And his response was, I am. And when he answered, they fell over backwards. He gave the ancient name for God. And when he did such power move that they fell back, it was a flash of his deity striking through his humanity. It was Jesus undoubtedly demonstrating that he is very much still in power. Oh, and then you see Jesus' response here in chapter 19 to Pilate. Look in your Bible at verse 10, where Pilate says to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has greater sin. Jesus is telling you here very clearly that he is not overpowered. He did this in obedience to and for the glory of his father and because of love for you and me. You know, every time you read through this portion of scripture, every time I read through the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, I pause to remind myself that Jesus allowed this to happen. 
that he wasn't helpless in this moment. I remind myself, I notice that Jesus didn't try to sprint off and flee the scene in Gethsemane when they showed up. No, Jesus would embrace the cross willingly. As we read at the beginning of our service this morning before our worship began, we read from the prophet Isaiah who foretold that the Messiah Jesus, that he would be unrelenting and even unwavering in his determination to persevere through the excruciating task set before him. When Isaiah 50 verse 7, when the prophet, he says, because the sovereign Yahweh helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, have I set my face like flint and I know that I will not be put to shame. Set his face like flint. It's saying he's determined and focused. He was consumed, not overpowered or fooled. Oh no, he did it because of love for you. That's why he was taken. And it's a love that's not built on your merit by making yourself lovable. No, it's a love that's based on his mercy. Oh, it's not a love that we earn. It's a love that we receive through humility and repentance and faith. You see, think back again to that statement Jesus made to Pilate in chapter 19, in verse 11, where he answered and said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Do you notice the paradox here of God's sovereignty and yet human responsibility and free will? Do you notice that being laid out here? God is sovereignly working behind the scenes to bring about redemption and restoration of creation. It's why Jesus here says, you have no power unless it's given to you. God being sovereign, you're meant to think of a sovereign ruler, a king over a kingdom. It's speaking of the lordship of God, that he reigns as lord over creation. And as he reigns, creation is subject to his ultimate authority. That is his sovereignty. Yet simultaneously, somehow, mysteriously, mankind possesses a free will, possessing the gift of being free moral agents who get to choose what they will do and how they will live. We're not mere puppets, nor are we living, thankfully, in a simulation. The proof of that is seen here when Jesus communicates human responsibility for their actions. Again, he says, you have no power at all against me unless it's been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin has the greater sin. Pilate has limited understanding and limited exposure to Jesus. The religious leaders who dragged Jesus to him, they had far more exposure and experience with Jesus. But the one who sold him out to Jesus, the one that Jesus said of him, of Judas, it would have been better for him if he was never to have been born than to have done these things. Jesus knew, or Judas knew who Jesus was and was without excuse for his actions. So Jesus says, although all were guilty of sin for their handing of Je handling of Jesus in this moment, Judas's accent, actions were far darker than the rest because he had greater exposure to Jesus than they did. Now think with me. If God was merely sovereign and man did not possess a free will, then this makes no sense at all because their sin did not have varying levels of wickedness connected to it. They would have all sinned for the very same reason and same motivation because God sovereignly caused them to do it. But here Jesus says that as bad as it is for you, it's far worse even for another because of the deep darkness of their motivation for why they sold me out. You see, this isn't the case because of his sovereignty. It works in tandem with their free will. Do you see this paradoxical mystery before us of God's sovereignty and yet man's free will? Although God is clearly sovereignly working in this moment, 
mankind would be held responsible for their actions in this moment. Because God's sovereignty did not take away man's free will, in which case it would have negated man's responsibility for these actions. But that's not the case in Jesus' comment here. You see, it's this massive mystery and paradox that the sovereignty of God and the free will of man can go, coexist and dance together to the tune of the eternal song of God's redemptive plan. It's a mystery that, that I do not fully understand. The million-dollar question is, but why does this matter? And why in the middle of all this does Jesus seem to point it out? You see, the sovereignty of God, when we see it, when we're reminded of it, is meant to comfort us. It reminds us that God really can work all things together for good. Oh, it does not get us off the hook for human responsibility for our human actions, nor does it place the lion's share of blame on God for the challenges and suffering that we're forced to endure. But it does give you great comfort when you're forced to face them. Because you have a God who you believe because he's sovereign can orchestrate and use them. Is the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who famously said that when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head at night. Author J.I. Packer observed this. He says, what we do every time we pray is to confess our impotence and God's sovereignty. Again, quoting Packer, he said, men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy, but in scripture, it is a matter for worship. We're looking at a father who is also a judge and a sovereign who also allows mankind to operate with free will. There's one final paradox that I just want to comment on as we transition towards communion, and that is the amazing paradox that we're seeing play out or, or the crazy thing that takes place when the world self-condemns itself by condemning Jesus. Because in condemning Jesus, the world really did condemn itself. You see, all of humanity was exposed in this dark and sinister moment. Every form of a human system was represented on that day, the day of Jesus' trial, and all rejected Jesus. And that did not reveal that Jesus was in some way guilty that everyone turned on him. It proved that we all are broken and guilty, all of humanity. And if we jump back into the story, Jesus, we, we find him being sold off for the price of a common slave, but then now hauled off as a prisoner. And if you pair the four Gospels together, you get a picture of the sequence of events in totality where Jesus is bounced around kind of like a game of hot potato beginning in the middle of the night, where he's first taken to the former high priest, Annas. And that's where he'll re receive the first blow as he's slapped in front of the crowd to humiliate him. But it gets far worse as he's handed off to the current high priest, Caiaphas, where he would receive his first set of beatings and be left to hang isolated in a pit. And then from there, he would be dragged at dawn's first light to stand before the great Sanhedrin, before being taken to Pilate and then passed off quickly to Herod. And then finally again, after being assaulted by the religious leaders and mocked by Herod, Jesus is sent back to Pilate to stand before him. And in our story in John's gospel, Pilate now succumbs to the chance of the crowds and gives Jesus over to their will. It's Augustine, the early church father, who wrote, saying, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. 
You see, not even Jesus would be spared from the pain that has become a part of the human existence and story. In fact, Jesus would embrace it in order to bring an end to it for all of humanity, for all of eternity. But when Jesus would suffer, you notice in the story that he will suffer alone because no one stands by him. At this point, Jesus doesn't have a single ally or supporter or friend. Everyone would turn against him and be counted against him. And now Jesus, he will stand before the Romans, before Pontius Pilate, a man who will feel the pressure of the religious leaders and and he will hear the shouts of the crowd who chant, crucify, crucify, a man who will appear to hold the fate and future of Jesus in his hands. But as we look at the Bible as a whole, we recognize what Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 tells us is true, that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the earth that our sovereign God knew what it would cost him. He knew what we would do in rebelling against him, and he knew what it would cost him to rescue and ransom us back. And yet our good God would choose at the dawn of creation to step forward into that plan. You see, every grouping of society and authority was involved, though, with no exception from this moment. You have the religious moralists, where arrogance and superiority are king, and they still hate Jesus and they're seen in Caiaphas. It's religious materialism, where where what you can amass is our identity, and it's your God. It's Annas, and those people, like Annas, still hate Jesus. It's every visible form of broken government, where power is gained while people are suppressed, that still stands in opposition to Jesus, just as Pilate did. Oh, it's religious nationalism where my faith and my political push for power are so intertwined and scrambled that they cannot be separated from themselves. It's seen in Herod. And that grouping of people still hates Jesus who says that my kingdom is not like yours and will not be moved forward with the sword. Oh, even the insider named Judas and each one who followed him on that day rejected and bailed on Jesus when he no longer promised or provided what they thought that they signed up for and what they believed that they deserved. You see, Jesus didn't fit in any form of a human system, so each human system turned on him and rejected him. And it did not reveal to us that Jesus was guilty. What it showed us instead, it proved to us instead that we are all broken and guilty, all of humanity. Ironically, though, the trial of Jesus, really what it does is it puts all of humanity on trial. Because by condemning Jesus, the world was really condemning itself. You see, Jesus' death was more than just a payment. It was a cosmic demonstration. That's what the book of Romans says. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says that while I was a sinner, Christ demonstrated his own love for us by going to the cross. And it demonstrated at least two things to us. It demonstrated that this sinful fallen world system was broken and corrupt. Oh, think about just how broken it is. There's only one perfect man in all of human history that ever graced this earth with his presence. And that one man was condemned to die at the hands of those appointed to uphold justice. You see, the cross took us to this bleak moment in time that shows us with clarity how deeply sin has marred God's good creation. And in that moment in condemning Jesus, the world was condemning itself. The world in this moment is demonstrating just how broken and backward it is. The world was more than just exposed that day, though. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the cross and the resurrection, 
is that its system, the world's system, was defeated in that moment. And Jesus would not win through violence. He would not fight fire with fire. He would overcome evil with good. Oh, it demonstrated two things this moment at the cross would. It demonstrated that this sinful fallen world system is so broken and corrupt, but it demonstrated a second thing, and that's that Jesus' love is incomparable. It demonstrated the amazing, incomparable nature of the love of God. You see, the cross doesn't just show us that the world is broken. It shows us here just how good, loving, compassionate, and gracious Jesus is. This is what the gospel shows us. Broken enough that he would have to die. Loved enough that he would be willing to die. Jesus, we look at this story and we we don't just see today at first glance. We don't just see someone who's overpowered, who's been duped or tricked, someone who's weak or frail. Jesus, we see the God who created the universe entering into creation to suffer and die to redeem and restore it. Jesus, we see your power. And Jesus, we see your justice. Jesus, we see your great love. May that love radically change our hearts reshaping our lives. God, we see ourselves on trial in this moment. And we, with humility and honesty, we say, Lord, forgive us for our brokenness, for our unrighteousness, for wickedness that exists in our hearts that does deserve judgment. Jesus, there is no parameter or constraint or request that you could give that would be unrealistic because of the matchless love that you've given to us. There's nothing in this earth like being loved by you. Jesus, we thank you for that costly, that gracious, that free love that you give us. And Father, that's where we end today as a church, remembering that gift. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.